Let me see you put them up. Reach the sky, touch the stars up above, cause it's one time for the underdog. I am Patrick B. David, your host of iTimin, and in this interview, I'm sitting down with Steve Wozniak, former founder of Apple, and he shares stories about Steve Jobs, how they almost went out of business, and how one founder at the beginning decided to walk away, and what that possibly ended up costing him. So thank you for joining us. Wow, it's incredible. It's been fun. How'd you, did you have fun last night with us, by the way? Had a lot of fun. I didn't realize that the, the um, alarm clock in my room had got set four hours advanced. So I woke up real early this morning. <laughs> so I, I heard, you know, a lot of times when, when, when we, you know, we bring somebody in. But hey, let me say, though, listening to you speak and the speaker we had and the whole event and the awards, I have been to a lot of galas and award events for companies. I have never been to one as good as that. I was, and, and watching you, I mean, I'm just totally sold because, you know, what you have to do, you're talking about, it's that, that drive and wanting to do something to make a difference, and you really bring that out in everyone, yourself, so. Absolutely. So, let, let's, let's, why don't we start off all the way to the back on how the whole thing got started. I mean, why don't you just tell us how the story on how it got started from the idea to it being where it's at now. Sure. Yeah, I grew up so advanced in electronics and computers that I couldn't afford anything, had no money. But I could design any computer there was in the world in just a couple of days. And I just did it for fun. It was a hobby. And I wanted my own computer. I told my dad at one point, someday I'm going to have this particular computer of my own. And he said, how are you going to do that? It costs as much as a house. And I was sort of stunned because I was young. And I said, well, I'll live in an apartment. So I would rather have a computer of my own that I can just write programs on, even if it's just to play a game, wow. just to solve a chess problem. And eventually what happened was um, I had a lot of luck doing some extremely exotic design things. I got into the early stages of arcade games, designing games like Breakout for Atari. And I just did that on the side. And I was working for Hewlett Packard designing the hottest gadget product in the world, the HP Scientific Calculators changed the world. Within about five years, there were no more slide rules sold. Every engineer, every scientist had to have one of these HP calculators, and I got to design them. I had no college degree, but they interviewed me, and I knew so much about it all that they hired me anyway. And while I was doing that, I was designing all sorts of little projects, the video games and terminals that I could talk to computers across the country. And finally, I realized the formula, the day had come, when you could buy low enough cost memory chips, low enough microprocessors that did enough, I figured out in my head the formula to building an affordable computer. And I, I said, wow, this is what I've wanted for you know, 10 years. I've got it. I'm here. And so how did that lead to uh, you and Steve? I guess yes, the question yes. would be, how did you Steve guys... Was, Steve was a very good friend. Five okay. years before Apple even, he, we met because I had designed one computer and some executive gave me some chips to build it. And I was building it at a friend's house, and the friend introduced me to Steve. He said, both of you guys know digital electronics. So Steve came over and described projects he did at Hewlett Packard, building frequency counters that had displays of digits, counting you know, frequencies of things like guitar chords or whatever. Um, and I told him what I had done, how my, all my experience, and I was sort of like the top young designer you could ever run into in the times. And Steve was the, he was the leader. He was always trying to be one of those special few people in the world, the few that take the steps forward and, you know, like, you know, a Newton. He spoke of Newton and, and um, Shakespeare and things like that. And I know that he really wanted to be one of those people, but he wanted to find formulas to have, have find a company and sell things. 
So every time I designed something really cute, Steve would come by and say, I know how we can sell it. So we were always a partnership selling my little projects. So, so, but the whole thing got started, I, I read this story about how you, you guys had this project underground, telephone, long distance minute, what was that all about? Telephone long distance. Um, when I, yeah, my, my third year of college at Berkeley, I, um, I read an article that I thought was just the most amazing fiction story ever about these clever engineers that were smarter than the engineers in the phone company. And they could turn the, they could set up their own little networks and, and find the bugs of the system and help Ma Bell correct them. And, and it was kind of honorable the way I read it. And Steve and I, I, I called Steve up halfway through the article and started reading it to him. And I said, there's something wrong. This article sounds too real, like real people, like real frequencies they're telling us about. We went down to a scientific um, library that day. I was going to start classes at college the next day. We went down to Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. And in those days, it was the high-end physics research place of the world. Smart people always leave doors unlocked. That's one thing I found. So we would drive in and we'd always find a door unlocked to get into the main building. They had a library. They had computer books. They had technical things. And we verified that this article was true. You could put tones into an American telephone and dial calls for free anywhere in the world. You've got to be kidding me. No, the system had that big of a flaw. So I was amazed. This is like, <laughs> it's so amazing to know this. Nobody knows it. And I can show it off now. I can actually build a device and demonstrate it and show it off. So to me, it was more as a comedian. And, and, and you know, and bringing people's attention to this weird phenomena. So, um, so I designed this little box that would do it. And Steve said, "Oh, let's sell it." Okay, and we sold it. We both sold it uh, in the dorms to people. <laughs> and for a year, for a year, for a year, I thought I was kind of, you know, boy, my own phone calls. I would pay for them. I wouldn't use it to save money. But I liked exploring the network and being able to convince a Tokyo operator that I was a New York operator and get her to put it over to London and around the world. And I'd call one phone and speak in one phone and come out the other one a so, second later. It was very weird back then. This is what I heard. This is a story I heard. I don't know. I heard you were a prankster. Yeah, a lot of times you hear stories and you think people are so serious to build something this big. You got to be serious all the time. And I heard with that machine, you actually called the Pope. <laughs> yeah, I called, I called um, Italy inward, I asked for Rome inward, I got to the Vatican, and they said it was 5.30 in the morning. I said I was Henry Kissinger. <laughs> and, and then, so they said, well, it's 5.30 in the morning, call back and, you know, later. And I called back at 6.30 in the morning, their time, and I used a little bit of an accent to sound a little like Henry Kissinger at the summit with Nixon in Moscow. And, and uh, the bishop that answered said, I just spoke to Henry Kissinger. Busted. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, guess, I guess one of the things you see with all the great ones is they push the envelope. And when you look at it, uh, when you and Steve work together, it almost seemed like a perfect partnership because of different strengths that you had. Well, Steve was sort of like the leader. He's always looking for ways to turn things into a product or a company, make some money. And if you have a good enough product and make enough money, you can make a better product with that Got money it. and go up, go up the ladder. And that was his approach. And I was a good leader has to spot the talented resources, the, the best people to do the different jobs and the right products, the right direction to go. So he was the direction setter and he just knew that I was the best at what I did. So I was that part of the formula. And I designed all the early Apple computers from scratch. You know, normally you go to college and you learn hardware or you learn software. Mm -hmm. You're one or the other. I did it all. I did the whole hardware. I wrote the computer programming languages. I did every single bit of the whole computer. That's unbelievable. I but, but I did it not for a company. I did it because I wanted it myself. If you can convince somebody to want something inside for their own personal reason, they really see something that they want to do and they really feel it in their heart, 
that's when um, you get a lot more done than any, you can't motivate people with a high enough salary to do what you'll do when it's for your own self or to show off even. And that amazing. So I, I guess the question becomes this, uh, to, to become successful in any field, do you have to know everything and everything about it? Or is it, is it kind of like you got to put a good team together? Wow. You do need some backgrounds of, let's call it, education training. You okay. do need those elements. But a person knows how to take the little elements and build on them and formulate, write the book of how you actually put them into play. A person who comes up with the ability to write the book, I think is better than someone who knows how to do it from past experience. Mm. Because everything I did at Apple that was an A-plus job and that took us places, um, I had two things in my favor. A, I had no money. That meant I had to figure out ways to do things very inexpensively. I had to get a lot, lot out for the least in. And B, and I was very good at that, and B, I'd never done them before. Every single Apple project, computers, hard disks, everything, I had never designed those things ever in my life. I had had no training in them, but I was so good at taking the little parts, like pieces of wood, to build a building that I could architect something that was perfect and really better than people that were used to doing it would do. That's unbelievable. Yeah, if, if I had had experience, I would have designed things with 50 chips instead of eight chips. Traditionally. Yeah. That's interesting you say that. What did Ronald Reagan recognize you for? I think it was in 1986 yep. uh, or 87? The first National Medal of Technology was created in 1986, I think, and yeah, the president, Ronald Reagan, gave the awards to me and Steve Jobs. We're in the first set of recipients. Because um, Apple was, you know, really doing a lot of good for the world then, and the economy, <laughs> that always helps a president. But, you know, Ronald Reagan was one of the early presidents that they all speak out. We've got to have more um, emphasis on mm. technology, on innovation. And to me, I thought, wow, they're going to have more math classes and science classes in schools. It's never happened. It's, so it's, there's, a, there's a lot of talk everywhere, but it's very hard. It'll get translated into a couple little projects that are nowhere near what you ever hear of. Intelligence in our schools is defined as always having the same answer as everyone else. You go home, you watch the same news show, you come back and talk about current events, mm -hmm. you all say the same thing. And not one person says, no, that doesn't make sense to me. Not one person is really taught to think for themselves, or that's called not intelligence. Um, we're taught how to, how to calculate when two canoes will meet on a river. The river's flowing five miles an hour. You know, and we never, we should teach kids to raise their hand and say, no, that wouldn't work because you can't predict the water will be exactly five miles an hour. There's going to be wind and, you know, why don't we, we you know, think, think about these things, be skeptical a bit. We don't really teach that way. We just teach, come up with the same answer that everyone else would. Well, then you're just one in a billion. But isn't that kind of controversial? That's like being a follower instead of a leader. You go isn't that, isn't huh? that kind of controversial, though? Isn't that kind of controversial to do the opposite of what everybody else has done? Well, I think, well, some schools, like Montessori schools, get around, you know, do some better job at that. But, um, you know, we just our whole system of schools is, is unfortunately very bad because it's based on money. Mm -hmm. And money, in, in, especially in a democracy, you've got a problem. Schools all are funded by the government. They're all funded by the government. And government has slices of pie that go into different sectors, usually according to how much money there is there or how many votes. Well, the funny thing is, um, for schools, kids don't get a vote. What that translates to is a family of five gets no more say than a family of two. And the family of two doesn't want to spend money on schools. And the family of five does. So you've got this controversy where you're constantly outvoted by the, the masses. You, you didn't really, the kids don't get counted as a, as a, as a vote in the, you know, determining how much money schools are worth.
and need. So schools are always going to be short of money. Short of money, it means you have to have a large class and everybody doing the same thing and there's no, you can't have any randomness. Well, well, you know, and I think randomness and even a little misbehavior is really essential to creative people. Well, you, Steve, I, I was a kid that had a 4.0 GPA. I followed the system, the rules to the T, everything I did perfectly. Uh, obviously, I'm being sarcastic with you. Uh, I had a 1.0 GPA. I filled most of my classes except math. I love math. That was it. I mean, I could listen to that stuff all day long. But yeah, let's change gears. I got a question for you about this. Mm -hmm. So, Steve Jobs, was Steve Jobs an expert? I mean, an expert in designing the Apple One, the Apple Two, the so I mean, the computers. Was he an expert in that area? Steve understood it and he knew how to listen to which people were telling the best stories. He couldn't quite design things. He wasn't quite an engineer level, but he was close to it because of his understanding of electronics. So he wasn't an engineer. He couldn't, he, I don't think he ever wrote a program, software, so no, he, but he understood the value of them. But at first it was just mainly what could sell. He could compare to other devices and he knew what would sell. He had worked selling in surplus stores where all these little extra electronic parts came and he would know how to buy some switches for six cents that he could sell to somebody for six bucks. So was he more Back a salesman in those days. or more a technology days. guy? What? Was he more a salesman or a technology guy? He was, well, he was a good mix. You know what, when you have a guy at the top, he's gotta be good at sales. Sales is where your income comes from. But he should also be able to, if you've got a guy at the top of a company that understands the technology and can talk to the engineers, and not be totally lost and just say, you do what you're yeah. doing, I trust you. Yeah, that's good. And he was, he was sort of, he had a good understanding of it, which helped. I mean, although, although really the story of Apple is a little misunderstood because um, it's like Steve and I did it ourselves. And we really, with the Apple II computer, we got funding. A guy funded us, an angel, and he joined us. And he had made his money working in marketing at Intel and as an engineer before. And he was a mentor. He was kind of young, but he was wealthy. And he owned as much of Apple as Steve and I did. Same amount of stock. Mike Markle is his name. Mm -hmm. And he ran our marketing. But he was our mentor. He told us how we would organize the company, what Steve's roles would be, what my role would be. Um, so he was really more responsible for Apple's success than anyone. But he kind of lays out of the picture because Steve and I came from nothing. We had no savings accounts. We had no relatives or friends that could loan us money. We had, um, we just had this drive. We wanted to build this computer, wanted to find a way to sell it. And, you know, and, and for a while we were getting the parts on 30 days credit with no money. And we'd build the computers in 10 days and sell them for cash at the store. So that was, that was how we ran for, you know, a good year with the Apple One computer. The interesting because we had nothing ourselves. The interesting thing I read in Accidental Millionaire about you is, you had a full-time job when you started Apple. So you were part-time with Apple and you had a full-time job while building an Apple company. That's right, I worked for Hewlett Packard. I loved Hewlett Packard. I had determined in my life I didn't want to be a high up, run other people's lives person. I didn't want to get into be political. I didn't want to be a manager. I was gonna be an engineer for life and the greatest engineering company in the, in the country was Hewlett Packard. Everyone was building products that other engineers used. I mean, that was my life forever. I would never leave Hewlett Packard. So I made sure when we came up with the Apple computers and Steve suggested starting a company, oh, I tried to talk Hewlett Packard into doing it. Five times they turned me down. Five times they turned me down? Five times. The first time wow. I spoke of the idea of a little machine for $800, you could type your programs in and see them on your home TV. And they turned it down for some good reasons. Hewlett Packard couldn't have built the product the right way. 
When your, your company culture establishes your product has to be very boring and engineer strictness about it, you know, you can't use normal things that normal people have, like a normal cassette tape recorder to store programs. So they really would have done the, the project all wrong and eventually they did. Then when we got the order for completely, we were gonna sell little PC boards for 40 bucks each at first. Then when we got the order to sell them with all the parts in, whoa, we're selling every one for $500. I got scared, so I went to Hewlett Packard's legal department, and I had them research what we were going to do, send, or send it around to every Hewlett Packard division, and they all turned it down. And they all turned them down. They all turned it down. And then when we started a project in our lab at Hewlett Packard, right on my floor of the building, I went over and I said, I, I really, I, calculators aren't my life, computers are. I want to be on this computer project you're doing. They started a computer project. A little microprocessor, just like I had used. A bunch of dynamic memory, like I had come to use. They had five guys writing a basic language and I had just written one myself. So I'd done it all and I said, I'll do any menial, menial job. I'll do a printer interface, a little dinky job, but I want to be on this project and they turned mm. me down. I read a story that Atari almost bought you or Commodore for $100,000 and offered a $20,000 salary for you and Steve. Is that's, that accurate? That's or is that... totally inaccurate. Okay. The real truth is Steve and I went into Commodore first. We walked in. We had the Apple II design, but we had no money. Now you've got a computer that you know is hot and you can sell a thousand of. And we didn't give it away. I gave away the Apple I, public domain. No copyright, no nothing. The Apple II was too valuable for that. And we took it into Commodore and we're sitting there and they said, well, what do you want? And Steve says, well, we'd like, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars and I shut up, my salary was 25000 <laughs> at the time. And he says, and we'd like to you know, have stock and we'd like to have a position running the whole thing. And, and um, I was just, how can you ask for so much? That's just like, you're asking for the world. And Commodore turned us down. They had a guy that joined them that had come to our garage. I demonstrated the Apple II. And he went to Commodore and said, people don't want color, they don't need graphics, they don't need all these fancy things, they just want cheapness. Isn't that amazing? And the funny thing is, their machine was actually more expensive than ours because it didn't use your home TV. Your home TV is free for output. So Commodore uh, went their own way, and lucky for us, Atari loved us. And they loved the product, but they were about to come out with the first home pawn game ever. They were going to make millions of dollars off this. And they had their hands full. You don't, you don't want to divert from the one big project to try to do something new. But eventually, of course, Atari also got into these home computers. So, uh, you know, so I, that's how Steve and I, we, we went on a long course to try to get the money. We went to venture capitalists and they said, you guys are too, you know, we're in our young 20s. We didn't speak business talk. We'd never had business experience, never taken a business course. And uh, then we wound up with the angel, Mike Markle. And that was a big thing once that took place. He saw, he saw, he saw and believed that this product was going to be one of those categories that was going to be successful and pop up in so many homes and be one of those huge startups that grows to a billion dollars in five years back in those days' money. How many doubters did you guys have? People that doubted that this will never happen. How many what? Doubters? doubters. Um, many doubters. That at first, before Steve joined, he was up in Oregon. I was going to a club, a computer club, and people were starting to talk about the revolution that was gonna come. They hadn't found the formula to build the right computer yet that could sell to the non-techies, but boy, we were just so gung-ho about how we were gonna revolutionize education mm. and communication and, and calculating the finances for companies and everything. And, um, and uh, I forgot what the question was. 
I think I asked them, what are I asking you guys? Doubters. Doubters. How doubters. Many doubters. Okay, so the big computer companies, the big computer companies, like digital equipment, the mini computer companies, all kept saying, oh, it's going to go away. It's going to be a little hobbyist thing. It's not going to be important money-wise. It's not. So we had, there were a lot of official high-level doubters. But eventually, and, and the analysts were not, not really predicting it was going to be a big market until just about when we started with the Apple II. They, the analysts were about to finally concede this home computer market was going to be big. So the first day Apple gets started, first day Apple gets started, how was that all about? How did that whole dream get started, the first day? Well, the first day, I mean, I, was, I had this computer that I was giving away all the designs for freely. Freely and giving Steve, it away. Yeah, Steve Jobs just said, came back from Oregon and saw it, and he said, wow, let's, um, you know, we should um, sell these PC boards, build them for $20, sell it for $40. And didn't know if we'd, we'd have to come up with a few hundred bucks each, and that was tough. I had to sell the most valuable thing I owned, my Hewlett Packard 65 calculator. Sold it for 500 bucks and I only got 250. The guy never showed up again. <laughs> but uh, um, so, so we put a few hundred bucks in to make this PC board and then we got a little bit bigger interest. There's a, the owner of the local store. I'd been looking over my shoulder at the computer club. I would just type on a keyboard, a little board with a bunch of little, you know, accountable number of $1 chips. And this thing is actually running software and programs and. And so he decided he wanted to buy the complete things all built. And we didn't quite supply the Apple one completely built. We didn't have time to get cases and power supplies done. That was the Apple II. That was later. Um, and when, when the Apple II came along, yes, Steve and I both looked at each other. It was the day that I had come up with this little idea in my head when I was in a dreamy state. You know when you lose sleep, how you get a little creative thinking? I was down at Atari and we had a job. Steve came to me and said, you have to design this project in four days. And back then, a game, an arcade game, was not a program. It was not software. And it would take six months. So I had to do it in four days. And wow, I was great. And I, I said, I don't know if I can do this. We stayed up without sleep for four days and nights. We both got mononucleosis, the sleeping sickness, and delivered it. But while my head was sort of half awake and half asleep, I saw this thing on the factory floor of Atari. All the games were black and white TVs. This one game, it was going back and forth, changing color. And my eyes couldn't quite focus. I was so tired. And it's weird. It was like hypnotic. It was like you're at a light show at a concert. And they had little Mylar coverings on the TV, red, green, blue, yellow. And it made it look color. So I went back to a lab bed. Steve was, was wiring up my design on one side of the lab. And I'm on the other side thinking, color television. I remember how the frequencies go from high school electronics. What if I, and then I came up with this little method of taking a little one chip, digital, putting ones and zeros in it, cycling around one zero, one zero, one zero, up, down, up, down, up, down. I could make it look like color TV. Would it work? It doesn't, it's not the formulas. They have all this complicated calculus and hundreds of parts and thousand dollars to generate color, you know, on, on, you know, in TV stations. Would this little idea with a $1 chip work? And the day that I actually built it, the, Apple, the first Apple II prototype, and I could type something to memory, and a blue dot pops up on the screen of the TV. I type something else into memory, a yellow dot pops up. I called Steve Jobs over, and you know, that was a eureka moment. We were shaking. <laughs> this is so big. This is, you know, all the colored games are now going to be on computers. Everything so is going to be. So that all started with you, the color. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was a really incredible, uh, that's probably my best patent. That's kind of amazing, Steve. That, 
Bring, bringing color to the world. You're not in Kansas anymore. That's why we chose a six-color logo for our first logo from Apple. Mm. We were the ones that brought color because nobody would have ever expected color on an affordable computer, much less the graphics that we had. And we even had pixels, so you could almost have photographs on a screen. Um, no, it was so far ahead of its time that everybody else was going to have to sit back and figure out ways to do it. IBM did a, on the PCs did a horrible, horrible attempt at color. They just said your letters can be a certain color and their background can be a color, but we really didn't. They didn't really do graphics pure like we did. How close were you guys, both of you, of quitting at one point where it got tough? Where you said this may just not work out. We should just give it up and quit and sell off. We never went through that phase at Apple. No, we were just we were in a new revolutionary product area. All the press of the world was, yes, home computers are going to come, because they kind of didn't believe it and didn't know what it was, but there was nobody really saying in the press, oh, this is a horrible idea, because largely it didn't look like it was going to be big money. So there was no reason for the big companies to poo-poo it in the press. So really it was getting just gung-ho. I mean, it was thing, we thought we were on top of a revolution, and we knew that at Apple we were the leaders. So everybody we hired in those early years, young people, old people, we, we hired competent people in every department. If we hadn't done that, we wouldn't be here. But um, we just, everybody felt that we were just leading the whole new world and things were going to go up and up and up forever. And uh, nobody left the company for years, a few years, till we went public. So it was, um, it was really, we didn't have, oh my gosh, let's pack it up and quit. There were times, there was a time when um, it came time to actually take the money. And I don't want to be part of the, I don't want to be big money. I really don't. And I, didn't want to run companies and tell other people what to do. And I was so kind of a nice, too much of a nice guy, that I would probably get kicked out real quickly. So I, you know, I wanted to design computers, so um, there was a condition. I had to leave Hewlett Packard. And I loved that company, and I'm so loyal. And I didn't want to leave. I said, why do I have to leave Hewlett Packard? In one year, I've designed two computers, I've written a basic, I've done all these, these cassette tape interfaces and other interfaces for printers and things. I've done all that on the side. Why don't I just keep working on the side? And the investor said I had to leave Hewlett Packard. And I went on the ultimatum day, I went to his cabana and I said, no, I'm not going to start Apple. I want to design computers, but I'll do that on my own time. And Steve Jobs went into a frenzy, and he got all my friends and relatives to start calling me. And finally, one very, very trusted friend convinced me that I could start Apple, and I could stay an engineer, and just do it to make money. And I said, that's fine. Isn't that amazing? So, yeah, nothing so, wrong with making money off what you do. Now, was the motive initially of money, or was it to revolutionize an industry for you guys? It was more to revolutionize an industry, but money is partly the way to do it. You have to have successful success in the products to be able to build another higher level product to take you further and further out. And I know Steve was very Steve Jobs was very scared right away. Big company names like you were talking last night, IBM. Oh my God, they're gonna they're gonna kill us. And our marketing guy, Mike Markley, said he said no 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 no. Even at a big company, it boils down to a small group, and we're a small group. And we've got a lead. And if we think as well as they, if we have as smart a people as they have, we'll do the job and we'll, that will keep your market share. So it sounds like he played a big role in a company. Oh, absolutely. Huge role. What was and he, he basically, from day one, said Apple should be a marketing-driven company. You should understand your customers' needs and the pricing of products and competitive products. Mm -hmm. And that's how you decide what you're going to do. And then engineering more follows directions. Where I was coming from Hewlett Packard, where it was an engineering-driven company. Engineers in every phase of the management, from the founders on down, and 
we're building products for engineers, so we were the market. We could understand what made sense in our products and ideas for the next product that would, you know, turn the company Hewlett Packard around for 10 years might come from a low-level engineer. Wow. So how, 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 much, how much does courage play a role in starting a company and getting part of something, going against the bigger guys? How big of a role does courage play? Wow, I think it's like going on Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't know if you can do it and you're afraid to fail, but I'll tell you, that drives you to work harder and try harder than you've ever done in your life. You do have to, you do have to be competent and you have to seem competent. Mm. That's important. You have to appear competent. Um, as far as, we didn't take really great risks. I mean, I sold my calculator. It was my most valuable thing, but I sold it for $500 in theory. And I knew that the next month we were coming out with the HP 67, a better one, and my employee price would be 370. So it didn't take a financial risk. Um, yeah, finally leaving Hewlett Packard, going out on my own. It was a big risk, but it was a risk with a real strong belief that the product was good. So when we see the company from outside and we see Apple and we're using our iPhone, our iPad, you know, all this stuff that we use, when you first got started with the Apple, what was the work ethic like? I mean, how did you guys work with the hours and the sacrifices? How did that take part in this taking place? At first, we had really no such thing as hours. I mean, pretty much everybody was in full daytimes. Of course, when you're a programmer or an engineer, sometimes you don't have something fixed at 5 p.m., 6 p.m., 8 p.m., midnight, 2 a.m. You go home very tired. Maybe you get it fixed, maybe you don't. That's just the life of an engineer my whole life ever, even when I was just a young student and loved, it, loved electronics and nothing else, I'd stay up as late as I could when something was close to being done. Um, that's what drives you, especially software. So um, we just had kind of one room, much smaller than this, and about five desks at first and then seven. Everybody could see everybody. And we got another little tiny office because we hired a guy that um, the other people didn't like too much. So to get him out of their way. I, I loved him. He was, he was the guy that, um, known as Captain Crunch with the blue boxes that called all over the world, had him develop a great phone board that could make a phone call in the early days of modems. Could make a phone call on your phone line. It was before modems, really, mm. or before modems th that we know today that can dial. It would dial a call and listen. Is it busy? Is it answering? It could listen to the tones and tell like a human could. And that wasn't going to happen in modems for another 12 years. This thing was way ahead of its time. So it could dial, it could send out tones, and it could listen to tones. And he set it up, he, he wrote programs where it would dial 5,000 calls a day, trying to crack some codes. <laughs> Successfully. So, so work, I think there's no hours. When you start a gig, there's no such thing as you're working nine to five, this and this, and you're working your tail off to start the company off. No, any, yeah, any, any, you know, entrepreneurship, because I've been around so many. I love young people that are like we were, that, like Steve and I, starting their own little business and they've got their ideas and hang around them. And to go, it, I, I mean, you always see it though, they're usually young people. Look at the people who started Apple, look at the people who started Google and Facebook, very young people just mm -hmm. out of college, you know, and there's infinite time in the world. If you're really motivated to do something, you don't have all the obligations of, family and expenses and things that take a lot of your, you know, make it harder to come up with that time. Here's but a different it, that's, That does make a huge difference. Uh, I, you, you could never add up the amount of hours we would put into these projects. Here's a question about entrepreneurship. You see, one, one thing I see is, you know, there, there are very common uh, commonalities, similarities between people who win in different fields. 
What basic principles would you say that is common in order to want to become successful as an entrepreneur? What could you say to the guys here that are here for the first time, maybe saying, okay. if you want to make it as an entrepreneur, this is what you need to do. These days, entrepreneurship is taught as courses in all the colleges, mm -hmm. and usually it's a business level course. So you've got all these business guys that, oh my gosh, if I write some ideas down on paper, that's how you go about it, starting a company. And I, my principle is no. I, 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 so many people in Silicon Valley got used to write ideas down on paper and then try to get some money, try to get some money, try to get some money, like we can just buy the engineering for it. No, I like the type of entrepreneurship that has actually created working models. Here is an example of something that works the way we want it, and we've built it, and we've got the, the, talented, the talented technical people that know how to do it, and I think it should get to that phase. I'm, so the entrepreneurship, it's a combination of the business and the technical um, doers, the technology people. So competence, work ethic, business combined together. Yep, and you, but you've got to have somebody, at least in the company, that has incredible drive, that just, you know, absolutely determined that, you know, you're onto something big and we've got to keep moving to get there. And just about everybody in Apple was that way. Just about everybody in Apple was yeah, that way. Yeah, we believe we were really, really getting, make, going a long ways, making a lot of money in a very short time. It's a big, uh, big attraction. Wow. So what, 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 what did you see yesterday when you saw, you know, you're seeing the whole thing taking place, people coming up on stage, going crazy, guys wearing spandex, football jerseys, all this other stuff. I mean, you know, what did you think yesterday, similarities to how Apple was with the fire with us in this industry? You're ahead. PHP's ahead. I have to say it. When we, when we started Apple, we were a lot more subtle with, um, we didn't have award ceremonies for quite a while, and you know, recognizing the people's accomplishments. Um, there weren't very many of us, you know, there weren't very many engineers. For a while, I was the one engineer, so there wasn't a place to recognize accomplishments. Um, I guess your name could pop up on a patent was the best, the most it would be. No, I like that. I was, I was smiling heavily all through that thing last night because I was in the back so people could take pictures and I wouldn't be blocking the way. <laughs> so, but no, but I, I, it was really, uh, yeah, it was really good to see. I really hope that everybody out there is a real come through star and, you know, I think you've got to believe in yourself. You've got to believe that you've got the talent inside and then you've got to actually present that. You've got to believe it, not just pretend it. So you, you mentioned one thing. You said we recruited people to come on board that all were good at what they did. So recruiting was very critical for the success of Apple. We did some recruiting. We lucked out by having a few good people around us to begin with. Our funder was incredible at marketing, whereas all these other little hobbyish companies didn't have anybody, you know, his caliber at all. And, you know, my excellence in engineering was, was well known. And, but then when we hired people, we, we looked around, we needed a guy that is, runs the operations. He's the guy that when things aren't getting done and need a little attention, he gets on their backs and makes the phone calls, makes sure they get busy so that parts of the company don't hold up. Mike Scott was our president from the day we started till the day we went public. You never hear his name, but he was, that was an incredible experience. Um, we hired very good um, salespeople and accountants right from the start. We had quality people in the company, not just a whole bunch of kids. That's good. That's exciting when you hear that because, you know, at the end of the day, you, you're putting a team together. And when I read this story about Apple, it seems like people play their roles. 
Everybody yes. took responsibility in playing their roles. Yeah, all the various disciplines were well, had good people behind them. And then I looked back after just a couple of years, why is Apple going so well? And all these other companies, every single other one that started in our little homebrew computer club, faded away. Why? What was the difference? And really, we had the good people in all the different categories you need. That was probably the main thing for a, for a startup. Absolutely. That's great to know. You know. I watched one of your interviews in 1984, um, and you were at your home. You had your three dogs with you. And in this interview, you said this. You said, perhaps once a decade, a very large market, new market, comes from zero up to billions of dollars within a few years. A new group of people come out. Right? You said this in an interview. So when these groups come out, what are some of the commonalities these groups have in common that go from zero to billion dollars? I'm not talking about the groups of people as much as I am about the industry. A new industry gets formed and it might be, you know, color television and something comes along. You know, personal computers came along really with Apple. And when that, that whole market, the whole market expands so great, that's when companies can become, join the big leagues in a very short number of years. Did you guys initially think you were going to become the big leagues and become this $230 billion company? I mean, powerhouse worldwide. Was that something that you, you knew this was going to happen or was it a vision you cast it saying, let's see if this is going to take place? Well, if you asked us a question back then, are you going to be $30 billion in 2010? Whatever, you know, I, I, I think I would just invoke um, exponential laws or, you know, and say, of course we will because money will deflate too. <laughs> or, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot of different ways to come up with that. But we, we truly believed within five years we would be huge, that there would be computers in every house, that we were going to be one of those companies that doesn't go away, doesn't get consumed by others. We were very individualistic and proud of what we'd done. And boy, now, now I realize how <laughs> lucky, how rare that is. Yeah, a lot of, an awful lot of good companies start out and they seem to have all the right pieces and formulas and still drop off and it's, it's hard to say why. You know, it's even hard to say why, why MySpace and Facebook. It sure is. You know, you, you look at uh, the stories of computer. In the book Accidental Millionaire, it talks about how computers back in early 1900s, the one that was designed, the number they said is 40 tons roughly. And when they turned it on in Philadelphia, the lights in the entire city went down when it would turn on this computer. To go from a computer that's 40 tons to come and make a PC, that's doing the impossible. You've got to be a little bit crazy to think you're going to do something like that. Um, a little bit that's true, but the world was going down to where the, the computers were getting smaller and smaller, using less and less power, um, doing much more work due to advances in technology. The vacuum tubes of the old days took a lot of power. I've got a watch with vacuum tubes in it, and they run Can on 140 Can we have the camera zooming on this, by the way? Can we have the, you guys got to see this one. Let's have the camera zooming on this watch. Yeah, when I turn if my wrist, can explain it, it. it displays hours and minutes. The little three-volt battery is boosted up to 140 volts to run those vacuum tubes called Nixie tubes, which are the display. And... Um, so in the old days, things were high-powered. The televisions got hot. You know, you took the tubes down to the grocery store to, when they burned out. I mean, that was part of our life. Then transistors came along. Silicon Valley was one of the big hearts of transistors. And we had little transistor radios that ran on a small battery, and they could run for a week on it. Mm. And then we had chips. And now with chips, you could build larger and larger projects. At first, the military could, you know, make spaceships way less. 
but uh, eventually you could build computers out of chips. And then the chips got better and better, and eventually an entire computer was on one chip. And all you had to do was design I.O. stuff around it. And so everything got shrunk and shrunk and shrunk, and today we have the iPhone. And it's obviously a million times the computer and a millionth the power. It's and unbelievable. Yeah. It is unbelievable. But some of those steps along that way could have delayed things if they hadn't happened. So starting Apple, I think, was one of the good steps that really took the world a quicker by spotting, spotting little formulas of how to make things at a certain cost. I think that's always the heart of it. It's, you know, if you have the better price, you win. What, 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 seemed, what I got from what you just said right now is the fact that, you know, doing the impossible, yes, somebody's going to do it because somebody's going to come out there and make something bigger and better anyway. That's what it's meant to be. You know, what does the future hold in technology? What do you think about the future? I mean, we have iPods, mm -hmm. iPhones, iPads. What does the future hold with technology? The way we communicate with computers mm -hmm. is called input and output. Okay. And it used to be just a big old typewriter and it would type back to you, a teletype machine. And then it went to the, Apple's, the Apple style with just a keyboard and a video screen that could display things. And then we got graphics, a better output style. A picture can sometimes tell the mind something much more quickly. You know, a picture's worth a thousand words. And, um, and, and it allowed us to then drag things. We got the mouse. But the mouse is remote control. When I want to move something on a table, I use my hand. The mouse was a remote control still. It was a little more human but a little not perfectly there. We tried to make the computer world seem more and more like human paradigms. I have a screen on a computer. We started calling it a desktop because everyone has a desktop. It's familiar. We were trying to make these computers friendly to the person that's afraid of computers, afraid of the word. And these days, now we've got the touch screens. I just love it. I love even my iPod Nano watch, just swiping along instead of pressing buttons. It's just much more comfortable the way, it, the way you use these things. Um, and I don't know why, the body actually, when it feels good about something, I prefer it. And sure, somebody can type things on their, their Blackberry whatever and do it just as fast, but um, I don't know. There's a thing in that you like, you enjoy the way it works. Now what I enjoy the most these days though is on all my smartphones, both iPhones and Androids, I enjoy where I can speak commands into them because I don't have to think. I don't have to think, how do I do this? Where is this little program? What do I click to put it into a certain mode? And then what do I click to put in some data? I don't have to do that. I just speak to it. I'll speak to, you know, call Janet Mobile, or I'll speak, you know, um, uh, navigate to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse in Las Vegas, uh, or make a reservation for Ruth's Chris Steak on the Apple. I love using the Siri Assistant. Make a reservation for six people at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse in Las Vegas at 8 p.m. Tuesday night. And it does it all, and I just have to press one little confirm button. It's all done on the web. Um, and so this world's getting more and more to the speech recognition being better and better. Um, you know, what's the largest lake in California? And I get the answer. I didn't have to go into Google and type things with my finger or my, my keyboard. I really love doing that. What's your and I, so I, I think eventually we're going to be um, speaking almost everything to a phone. And, you know, maybe every single program that you, app, app that you'd like to use on your phone will include its own little speech dictionaries. So you'll just have to say the name of an app and then tell it what to do in its own dictionary so that the same phrase doesn't have to be, you don't have to memorize a billion phrases. You've got infinite things that it can do. I don't want to get into that. We, we had a language at Apple that worked that way called AppleScript. What's your thoughts on social media, Twitter, Facebook? What do you think about when you see, you know, Facebooks, Twitters, mm -hmm. YouTube? 
I'm a poor person to ask about about those sort of things. I mean, I think they're very they're obviously so important, and you get a lot of value out of them. I get a lot of value out of Facebook and Twitter. I just don't have time to use them because I'm so hung up in so much email. And then I've got I now have probably 2,000 Facebook friends that I don't even know. But they asked me politely. <laughs> they said something nice about me, and I said, okay, they're an Apple Apple fan. Okay. And I've got 2,000 fans that I, I don't really know. So now I get a new social media and it says, do you want to link it to your Facebook friends? Oh my God, so all of a sudden I'm gonna have 2,000 people I don't know on this new one too? No, so I have, to, I have to leave those links out. And those links are very important for normal people to be able to link all of your social worlds to each other and include them. Like I, I might go on to just something that sends birthday cards. Do you want to, get, you want to link it to your Facebook? No, I don't. I don't, you know. It's, it's too huge, so I have to I have to avoid those things a bit. And at first, it caused me to think, well, they weren't really doing anything new that we didn't have before. We had web pages, we had email, we had interactions online, we had a lot of chat methods. So you know, what is it? It's just sort of a nice holding place. If you think back, 15, 20 years, AOL. AOL, when it started, it was Macintosh only. But AOL was the first one that brought graphics to this kind of a world. But you were in your own little private world with your friends, your people, your buddies, and your little chat rooms. And it was a very similar environment back then, which is probably why it was so successful in its day. Let's switch gears and let's talk about Ron Wayne. Um, yeah, I, I read an article in LA Times when you guys got started. And initially, because you, know, you were younger in your 20s, the industry may not take you seriously. So you bought somebody who was runway experienced. I think he was an Atari <coughs> guy. And uh, you made him a 10% owner initially. And you were 45. Steve was 45. And uh, 12 days later, Ron comes back. And uh, he sells off his 10% saying, I want to sell it back to you for $800. That 10% today would be worth $22 billion if he was still there. What, what, what happened with Ron Wayne? What was that story about? I don't remember if 12 days is right, but um, Steve came to me at one point and he said, okay, we're, I, I finally, Hewlett Packard had turned me down and we're going to start this company to make these little $20 PC boards for, and sell them for 40 And he came to me and he said, look, there's this guy, he, he kind of respected Ron's thinking. Ron was an, one of these arch conservatives reading all the conservative books of the time, you know, today he'd be considered a wacko. But, um, but it makes him sound very authoritative and he had so much experience in companies and having stock in some companies and getting screwed by the executives and knowing how these things work. And he attracted Steve Jobs. So Steve said, well, let's hire, we can hire him and he will, he'll do a manual for us. He's good at doing manuals. He sat down to typewriter and typed out a, um, our partnership agreement, all the legal phrases and words and and uh, I mean, I don't know how a person knows how to do that. He was incredibly talented. He drew the sketch, an etching by hand of Newton under the apple tree for our first, the cover of our first Apple One manual. And, um, and he was great. I know he was with us more than 12 days though. And so, so Steve's proposed that Ron would have 10%. So if Steve and I disagreed about something, Ron could, could resolve it. And I met Ron and was, wow, so impressed. He knew all these different things. And he referred me to a bunch of books. And when I got home, they were kind of trash to me. None dare call it treason and that kind of stuff. But, um, but um, I really respected his ability to think and, and to resolve things the right way. So that was his purpose. And then what happened was we got this order out of thin air to build computer boards with 
with parts on them and sell them for 500 each. A $50,000 order, and like I said, my salary, 25000 This was scary stuff, because now we're in big business, and I don't want to make Hewlett Packard think I'm you know, doing something behind their backs. Well, what happened was we'd get the parts on 30 days credit, build them in 10 days, as I said, deliver them to the store. And Ron Wayne figured out that what if something goes bad and we don't get paid? Then who owes the money on the parts? Well, it turns out that Steve Jobs had zero bank account. You know, zero, I had zero bank account. No savings account, no nothing. None of us had any wealthy friends. So Ron Wayne, all of his money would be at stake. So he was taking 100% yeah. of the financial risk for 10% of the company, and, and it was too flaky, and he, and he sold out. He, you know, he didn't have a vision There was a big picture, but it was so early with just the Apple I, it was hard to see where Apple would go. The Apple II really um, changed the story, and that came about three months later. So, so it takes a little bit of But I think Ron was with us for, for a few months. He was with you for a few months. Yeah. So what was his reason for quitting outside of that? Did he have outside influence that said, these guys may get sued, these guys may be out of business, these guys may have this? I never heard a reason for Ron quitting. Steve just told me he wanted to sell, sell out. And he walked away That's from it. it. I'm, so I'm guessing his reason. His reasoning would have been good. And he walked away from it, yeah, and very happily. And um, so, is, is he an Apple fan? I guess that would be a question. Every time he looks at Apple, that's $22 well, billion dollars right there. <laughs> I, 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 actually, I actually talk to him now and then, and he's um, a little bit on the poor side, so he can't always afford Apple stuff. Now. Yeah, that's, what, so. that's, that's actually what it said in the article. Yeah. Uh, it said in the article he now collects stamps and sells coins to supplement his Social Security income. And, you know, you hear a story like that, you yeah. feel bad because, you know, the opportunity was so... But that's so common in other industries as well. People hear a story, they, they come and they want to be part of it. Last minute, they get afraid and they want to walk away from it. Well, let, let's talk about this last thing because I know we only got a few minutes here and let's wrap it up. When, when did you know, Steve, that you were there with, with the big boys? You were there where your competitors started saying, okay, you got to be careful with Apple. When did that happen where you guys kind of said, okay, I think we're getting there? Well, what happened was the first killer app, a spreadsheet came out. And then a spreadsheet made this computer so valuable to any small businessman. Calculate all your income and expenses month by month by month, make a change and see the, the mm. bottom line months later. That, all of a sudden, the sales, sales shot up 10 times. We went into you know, heavy overdrive to ramp up. And within about a year of that, and we had the floppy disk come in. We, now we've been in business two years, and we were just selling so much. that if you, we didn't, Our stock wasn't on the market or anything, but its value was pretty huge. Steve came to me one day and he said, you realize that our stock is worth more than our parents have made in their life? And that was, that was still very early then. You know, a year later we went public and that was a huge, a huge thing. So, you know, pretty much you know it by the money, you know, how big you are. But of course we were just, but nobody ever said there was a, for many, many, many years, you know, there was a better computer in that class than the M2. And you said the Appleton computer, right? Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because that was a surprise for you. We actually have an Appleton computer. If we can have it come up here, you guys, if we can bring that Appleton computer up here. <laughs> it was an Apple II computer, which was designed by you. Oh, yes. Yeah, very familiar. Uh, and our first Apple II computer, let me tell you an important part about Steve Jobs. When we designed it, I did all the computer stuff, all the hardware, all the software, and 
Steve's, Steve knew a guy that made motorcycle seats out of a foam process in Palo Alto, and this guy could make some cases for us. So Steve actually worked on uh, with an artist to draw some case designs up and came up with the general design of the case. Kind of like a typewriter, very nice case, very, um, very efficient and thought out, well thought out the way it works. So um, we, our first cases didn't have these little grooves here. So they were, that's how you can tell the very earliest ones. But that guy could only make us like 12 a day. You know, we're begging him. We're, we're sending an engineer over every day to his house to try to get 20 of them. And we finally, we had to send off and to make real plastics overseas. We finally got that. It saved the company. <laughs> so please put this in perspective. This computer's power compared, compared to today's computer. Uh, probably one millionth. One millionth. Yeah, this one. This one has, for example, it originally came with 4K bytes of memory. Now 4 gigabytes is considered small, a million times more. Um, the speed of this one was 1 million, and the speed of today's is several billion, so that's thousands of times more. In speed, call it maybe 10,000 times more. Yeah, so, but it did the job, and it did it well and fun, and did just what it was supposed to, and, and everyone who had one loved it. When did this first come out? 1977. We put this out. I designed it in 76. 1977. Yeah. In that 77, and it was um, so far ahead of its time. And it, but the best of all is I built in a lot of game stuff and tell people computers should be fun. You should have a fun element in your work. I watched that video last night. I mean, that's really, you've got to have the people, you know, laughing and smiling as they do their job and talking to each other. Absolutely. So, so, so look, we can put this up here. So, question about competitors. When you first got started, how did the competition look at Apple? Did they, did they take you seriously your first year? Did they, did they, I mean, did they laugh at you? Did they spread rumors? Did they, was there a lot of propaganda? I mean, what happened when you first got started? How did they look at you? The, the Apple one was, you know, I developed that and gave it away at the computer club, and it was selling Pretty, pretty well, and we was, it was really the best little complete computer for the price you could buy. But one company in our club, looking over my shoulder, they had the formula. So they built their next computer with a keyboard and a little video display. It was called the Processor Technology Saw. It became the hot seller using the Intel chips, which I didn't use, and because they were too expensive for me. So it became the hot seller selling up to a thousand a month for a brief period, and then we had the Apple II, which we knew was 10 times the computer. That was color, that was graphics, it was games, it was, it was really everything, and, and uh, we knew we had the hot one, so we knew we'd sell a thousand a month of it. And uh, we didn't really have no competition for quite a while. You know, it was so probably, you it no was probably one to two years. Yeah, we, we, had, we had a couple of early competition products, but like I said, they were just cheap by comparison. They didn't have color, they didn't have graphics. They, they were limited, their memory, you couldn't expand it. I built this thing the way computer people build computers. Mm. You could increase the memory. If you don't have enough, you can add more. If you, if you need, think of a device like a floppy disk, you can add a card connected to a Got floppy it. disk. So they weren't expandable, and what happened was when that program, the spreadsheet came out, VisiCalc, this is the only one of those computers, the three of them that existed, that had enough memory to run it. So they had to write it for this computer only. So basically everybody else had to go back to the drawing board and make computers that could add floppy disks and things and could add more memory. 
So that was um, that was a big lead for us. Just it, an accident too. We hadn't really thought this is how this is. We're gonna we're gonna make sure that we don't you know, have to you know that we're well ahead of the competition because of this. We just lucked out. That's so interesting. Yeah, you, you but know, then later on, later on, competition. Once apples were really selling, IBM was the first major competition. And when they got into it, they had this huge marketing arm that went into every big organization in the world and selling big mainframe computers, but it was easy for anybody to buy an IBM. You'd never get fired for buying IBM. So they had, when they came out with their PC, it was very easy to get huge, huge sales. And eventually, it took, it took a few years, but eventually um, they surpassed the, the Apple II in sales. That's exciting. So you, you know, you, to, to wrap it up here, we only have two minutes and something seconds here. The people that got started initially with Apple, that did their parts, that played their roles, all of that mm -hmm. stuff. You know, with the success of Apple, how many people, I mean, how many people ended up becoming financially independent simply because of Apple when they got started the first couple of years? Hard to say. I think a lot more become financially independent now because if you get a high up executive job in a big company, your salaries now are, are gung high. But when we were a startup, well, there were five of us that really ran the company for the first three years. And we pretty much had you know, almost all the stock. So when we went public, that was what I didn't feel right about. I felt that everybody who'd been around us was a part of helping. But I came from Hewlett Packard, and they had profit sharing. Every quarter, a certain amount of the profit was given to the employees as stock, because you as an employee should feel like an owner of your company. And I felt that so strongly, so I gave away a lot of my own stock to almost everybody in the company and marketing engineering jobs, a certain level of job, and um, then I gave huge amounts to a few key people, young people that were in high school that helped enthuse me and you know, helped write code with me in the early days, wouldn't have gotten to where I got to without them. And I felt they deserved a part of it too. They shouldn't be treated like they aren't worth anything. Awesome message. Commercial, 1984, Super Bowl. You know which one I'm talking about. Yes. What was the, I mean, I look at that commercial, I get fired up when I watch that commercial. Yeah. Tell us a little about that commercial. Okay. I had had a plane crash. I'd gone back to college to get my degree, and Steve Jobs, I was over one day, and Steve Jobs called me over to the Macintosh building and said, you gotta see this. Puts a big pneumatic tape in the player, and keys it up, and it goes through that 1984 commercial, and I've gotta assume that almost everybody's seen it, mm -hmm. where the, the young track lady with a red outfit throws an anvil, and it, there's a big screen on the television saying, everybody has to think the same. You know, kind of like the IBM world. Everybody has to have the identical thought. Contrary thoughts will not be tolerated. And she throws it and it explodes and everybody's just gasping. They say, a new world is coming. Oh my God, I, that was the most incredible thing I'd ever seen. The most <laughs> incredible piece of science fiction. And to describe a company, Ridley Scott had done it. And I said, oh, we're gonna show this at the Super Bowl. And Steve said, no, the board voted against it. I said, why? And he said, well, they had some, some problems with the meaning and you know, I didn't get that. He said, and it would cost $800,000. I said, well, by then, Steve and I were worth a bit, you know, maybe a couple million each. And I said, I'll pay half of it if you'll pay half, you know, and we can still show it. And we should, because this is us. And I was so naive, I thought that's how things got done. But uh, eventually, eventually it did get shown that the um, agency that developed that commercial, um, they deliberately didn't sell off their Super Bowl time. They kept saying, we can't get rid of it, we haven't been able to unload it, but they were really making sure it didn't go. And so we showed the commercial, and that was very lucky. It was a, you know, still rated the best commercial ever.
Hands down, for now, taking over a traditional industry, which is exactly what we want to do with PHP. Steve, thank you for joining us here and coming on and spending some time with us. Honored to be thank part you, of brother. it. Absolutely. Thanks everybody for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five star, write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bidavid. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care everybody, bye-bye.